Hopefully you didn't eat too much so that you'll stay awake and maybe take out a pen and a piece of paper if you have one. If you've got a uh, program this morning, a bulletin, write on the back of that. That'll be fine. It's something that's going to remind you, and I want you to write down a name. Everybody take out a piece of paper. And I want you to write down a name of a person that you would like to see here on a regular basis. Just write it down. Don't worry, you're not going to be passing it to me. But I want you to write down the name of the one that you would like to see here on a regular basis or somebody that doesn't know Jesus that you would like to tell or have somebody talk to about Jesus. You say, Sean, that's getting real personal. <laughs> I always heard this this afternoon. We wanted an application of the morning's lesson. And so we're going to talk a little bit about doing something more than just sitting here wishing or thinking or saying, yeah, you're right, preacher, that's what we need to do. Write that name down and then I want you to turn that over and I don't want you to look at that name until later. And the reason is because we want to see what it is that prevents us from doing something about that one name. Do you realize that every one of you, if you had written a name down, if every one of you went and got one person, that person, this congregation would double in size almost overnight. One person. They're not asking you to go out and get a hundred people. They don't want you to become a full-time evangelist where that's all you do. Just one person. What does it take? You'll see a picture up here on the, the uh, screen behind me. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew, the ninth chapter. We're going to be looking at that here for just a minute. But this, this picture on the wall, my dad was in the railroad, and, and we used to go and look at all the different railroad cars when we were growing up. There's one just outside of Lamar. I think it's Lamar, Colorado. Or just inside Lamar. Or I think it's Lamar and Stafford, somewhere around in there. Up in the panhandle up there areas. It's got a picture. It's actually got a life-size replica of a steam engine. And I don't know if you've ever seen a steam engine in real life, but it is just downright flat amazing that they can put that much water into a kettle and roll it down the, the track pulling an entire load of cars behind it. And to know that that big kettle on the front was full of water and full of the potential energy released by that water boiling out, being created from that steam that went up through the motor and created a movement in those pistons that got that train moving. And you know, in order for that train to move, there had to be a lot of pressure built up, a lot of heat so that that water would begin to boil. And before you know it, that whole thing began to move. But that train would never move if they didn't put up any steam. If they hadn't gathered the power of all that steam. And the only way that steam came was from boiling the water. And the only way the water boiled was because somebody was stoking a fire. And the only way the fire would be going is somebody had to light it and somebody had to be feeding it and somebody had to bring a bunch of wood because they, they stoked that fire all the way down, all the way across the country. That's what they used to travel from the east coast to the west coast. And they had two guys feeding the fire, making sure the steam was at the right pressure 
making sure there weren't any buffalo in the way. I mean, that was a big process. Everybody else just kind of rode along and hoped nobody came to rob the train. (laughs) But that train never moved if there wasn't any steam. And the steam was the one thing that motivated that train, even though the steam could not make itself. The steam couldn't produce itself. The steam couldn't even be let through to be working unless somebody was there doing the jobs that produced that steam. You know, a congregation is kind of like that. I've always heard that a good organization is like a train moving down the track. You're either riding along or you got somebody behind pushing it or somebody pulling it all the way. But somewhere along the track in that train is you. And that congregation is the train. I want to talk a little bit about moving down the track. And why? What is the motivation? You see, the steam is the motivation for that train to move. And, and I think that steam we could apply to our lives as the motivation for us to do what we all know we need to do. It's kind of like the smoker who wants to quit smoking. You ever known any of those people? You ask them, did you know smoking is bad for your health? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I really should be, I really don't need, you know, I really should quit smoking. Next time you see them, they're still smoking. I thought you said you needed to quit smoking. Yeah, but you know, it's just, I, you know, I've got no motivation. And what motivates one person may not motivate another person. But they have to have the right motivation, even within themselves, to do what they know they need to do. With proper motivation, a Christian will seek to do more than just come to church and fill up a spot on the bench. With the right motivation, we will do more to save the lost than say, yeah, that's what we need to do. I think as we look in Matthew the ninth chapter, beginning in verse 35, we see something that really will help us understand what motivated Christ for you and I. You know, a lot of things could be listed as far as what was Christ's motivation But I think here in Matthew, the 6th chapter, beginning in verse 9, we get a pretty good idea of what that is. It says, But when he saw the multitude... Well, begin in verse 35. And Jesus said about all the cities... Went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he to his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, and the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. What was it about Jesus that motivated him to want to be here on this earth? Have you ever thought about that? Why did Jesus, as the creator of everything for His good pleasure, want to come to earth and work as a man, spreading the gospel of His Father, the good news that was about to come about, the kingdom of God being at hand? Why did He do it? What motivated Him as you would? What what propelled Him to go from city to city? with this gospel of the kingdom? What moved Him to endure 
the pain and the suffering and the anguish and the humiliation that would come in this life to him? What moved him to withhold his anger at the degradation that was given to him as the God and creator of the universe as flesh and blood? I've always thought about that. And you know, there's all kinds of things that could be listed. In John chapter 6 and verse 38, we find that one factor could be that you do not have His Word abiding in you because whom he, whom he sent, Him you do not believe. Jesus believed in His Father's will. He had a strong sense of what God wanted Him to do. And that could have been one of the things. He had a sense of purpose for being on this earth. And that might have been a motivation for him to do what he did. Maybe it was because he had the Father's love. You know, John chapter 15 verse 9, it says, As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide ye in my love. He had a strong sense of who his Father was and what his Father wanted of himself. And what he was about to do. In John 17, 26, he said, I have declared them in your name, declared to them your name, and will declare it that the love which you loved me with may be in them and I in them. You know, that's a good, strong motivation. We do a lot of things for love. And maybe that's what his big motivation was to do what he did, why he did it. Maybe it was because he knew what was going to happen. It wasn't just a strong sense of aboding potentials, but he knew what the end was going to be. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, he says, Don't fear him, though, don't for those that can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but fear those who can, who can kill both body and soul in hell. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the condemnation that was to come. He may not have known when, but he knew it was real. You know, Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. There was wrath and there was condemnation and there was destruction and there was... But hell, as a real place, literal place, was a place that Jesus knew very well and He knew about it and He spoke about it. Maybe that was His his motivation to do what He did and for why He did it. Maybe in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think each of these factors can help motivate and be a, be a motivation that Jesus had within Himself to do what He did. But I think most of all, in everything else, it all tied back to the thing that we read about there in Matthew the ninth chapter. In Matthew chapter 9, I think verse 36 is the telling tale. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Moved with compassion. Notice verse 36, that as he was moved with compassion, he did more than just have compassion, but he was moved with it. It touched him. It did something to him 
more than just seeing the multitudes, but he saw them in such a way as it touched his heart and that touch caused him to desire to alleviate their needs, their their pain and their suffering. He had compassion on people. You know, Jesus as the Creator... Have you ever talked to somebody who's making lots of money? Most most of us don't. I mean, really. I mean, you know, I, I talk to some people who are CEOs of big companies. I talk to the CEO of our hospital that I work for every now and then. and Well, I'm working there a lot now, but people going to school costs a lot of money. Um, but I talk to the CEO of the hospital... Now, the CEO of the hospital is actually over about five different hospitals and about 18 different clinics and about 15 different emergency services throughout the Houston area. Big time. And you know, sometimes he forgets the people down in the ranks and what's going on. And he walks by and he sees them doing their job and all he sees is their job. And people are like that. Let me give you for instance... In Houston, Texas, when I drive to work, every day I see about the same four people. (laughs) Especially when I'm coming home. You know what they're doing? they got a little sign. No work. Anything can help. God bless. I'll just be honest with you. I feel uncomfortable looking at the sign. Not because I don't think that they need the help, but because I see them there every single day Begging for money. Begging for food. And the sad thing is, when you see them give them food, they take it and they go throw it in the trash can. That's not what they want. And so my heart becomes calloused. And so every day, I have a heart of indifference building in me, scarring over and thinking, they just want the money. They didn't like the food. And I get more and more callous towards people that may or may not need help. Have you ever done that before? You you try not to look at them, really. You you don't want to look at them in the face. I mean, you look at your steering wheel, you look down here, you see them and you look off, you know, you don't. You know what I finally started doing between stops? I asked them, "Why, why do you need all the money? I started rolling down my window asking questions. Some of them really want to talk. Some of them are really hurting. Some of them don't know any other way. But I'll just be honest with you. Seven times out of ten, I don't look. And then I read this verse from Jesus. As He looks on the multitudes, He was moved with compassion. And then you read verse 37. He says, or or excuse me, the end of verse 36 because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Now what were these people doing? They were coming to Jesus and they were bringing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease, all kinds of of pathological problems, crippling diseases, demon possession. It was they just brought him all they he was the great physician. And the only reason he would look at them with more than just contempt was he was moved with compassion on them. They had nowhere else to go. And nobody else would look at them. 
Compassion, I think, for people around us is what's missing in our lives. We were laughing how wonderful TV families made so much more money because people really want that, but then when it comes right down to it, we'll go see the other ones too. Just maybe not as readily. The fact is, is we've become immune to the effect of those around us that even those of our own family. You know whose name I wrote down there? When I first read this, I did this exercise many, many years ago and I wrote my brother's name down there. Because he wasn't in the church. He had left the church and I wanted him in the church, but you know what? For some reason, I never acted on that name. We'll talk more about that and why. But you see, Jesus had compassion. If you read about Jesus' life, Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, thousands of people had come to hear Him and He was moved with compassion because it was the end of the day and they had had nothing to eat. How about Matthew chapter 15? He fed over 4,000 people. Why? Because He was moved with compassion because they hadn't had anything to eat. They'd come out to listen to Him talk. He fed all of those people. There were individuals that he looked on with compassion like the leper that nobody would look at that rang a bell to tell him how evil he was and unclean and yet he not only looked at them, he called them over, he touched them. Which was absolutely insane. And he healed them. He healed the demon-possessed man in Matthew, or Mark the 5th chapter Verse 19, because of his compassion. There was a widow of Nain who had lost her son and he brought him back to life because of his compassion for her troubles and her pain. There were two blind men that he was moved with compassion to heal of their blindness. Jesus had compassion on people. Compassion, a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress coupled with a desire to alleviate that distress. Now the reason I bring all this up is because He is our great example. His compassion moved Him to heal the sick, to dispossess the demons from them, to raise the dead, to feed the hungry, and to preach the kingdom of God. Because you see, as he was doing all of those things at the end of Matthew, the the ninth chapter, it says, the harvest truly is plenty, but the laborers are few. His desire wasn't just for their physical needs, but for their spiritual state and eventual damnation. He didn't pray for everybody to be healed. He prayed for everybody to have a chance to be harvested into the kingdom of God. He prayed for their spiritual state. He was moved with compassion for the lust, for the lost, and motivated this way. He did what he could to meet their needs and to preach about God in a way that they had never heard before, in a way that brought him as a father and not just the creator. As one who was love and full of mercy and not one who was just wrathful and vengeful. As one who wanted a personal relationship 
and not just to observe His creation. He was truly moved by compassion. And you know, you and I today can take from that a lesson that maybe we need to cultivate in our lives. As you look at all of these different things that Jesus did, He began to stoke the fires within each and every one of us so that we could gather steam to do more than just say, I believe. More than just coming here and sitting on a bench. It was more to be a Christian than just going to church. We need to do more. As we look at the things that Jesus did, we need to ask ourselves, do we have a compassion for the loss that Jesus had? Do we have a compassion for that name that was written on that card enough that we will do something to bring that person that much closer to Jesus Christ? How can we develop compassion? Because I will guarantee you that it's easy for me not to look at the people on the street. It was hard to roll down the window and ask the question, why? I saw you just throw that food they gave you in the garbage. He says, I didn't know where it was from. Well, then why can't you take the word food off of your sign and just say, I need your money? Well, they wouldn't give me anything. We get down to the heart of the matter. He said, I have an alcohol problem and I need some money for booze. There, I said it. And I said, at least you're honest. The other one said, i got four kids to feed and one hamburger won't do it. I've had three hamburgers given to me today. Two of them were half eaten. I gave her money. What do we do to develop compassion? I think one of the things that we need to do is to let God teach us how to love. Because I think we know how to be, but I don't know that we know how to love. We know how to love ourselves and to put ourselves up there and maybe our family. But you know, at a point we get disgusted with our family because sometimes they won't help themselves and you can't do anything for them. So what is it we've got to learn to do? We need to learn to love like Christ. Concerning brotherly love, he says, You have no need that I should write to you, for yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Let's let God teach us how to love. Watching Jesus Christ, looking at what He did in His life, maybe we can learn from Him how that doing those righteous deeds that the Scriptures are preparing us for, as found in 1 Timothy, that that doing those things, we learn what the love of God is, of putting others' needs ahead of our own, of developing a desire to save. Maybe we need to learn to let not only God teach us, but to understand the lessons that He has taught us. You know, we all know John chapter 3 verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But go on reading. It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He didn't send Jesus to say, See how righteous you can be. He said, I'm going to be the righteousness for you. 
so that you too can be considered righteous before God. God teaches us through the example of His Son and by frequent contemplation of God's love for us, we more and more understand our need to love others. You see, that's why the Word of God is so essential for you and I today. It's not just telling us how we can be better, but it's telling us how we can love each other, how we can have compassion for those who do not know Christ enough that we're going to do something about it. How about spending time with others? No, I I saw one guy one time, he said, I don't know how much you love me until I see how much love you have for me. You know, he was right. I wasn't very good at loving people. I wasn't very good at showing people. I was real good at beating them in the dirt with the Word of God, but I never got anywhere with them. Why? Because I realized I didn't have compassion for them. We've got to develop that compassion. And Mark... Chapter 14, verse 49, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not cease me, but the Scriptures must be fulfilled. What was Jesus daily in the temple? What was He doing? Teaching. Where was He? Among the people. He was constantly surrounded with people. And you know, today I think that it's easy to get lost in ourselves and not look at the people around us. Why? Because we have technologies that can separate us while we still think we're connected. I follow a lot of people in this congregation on Facebook. Did you know that? You know how I know about your lives? Because I see you on Facebook. Danielle, do I call and talk to you about your life and see how things are going? I don't have to. i got Facebook. You're doing great. Yeah. You've got issues, I've seen them. Dusty, I can't find much about you on Facebook. You must not be on there very much. I follow people. And we think we're connected. And we're more disconnected than we've ever been. It's easy to go home and watch the boob tube. It's easy to go home and look at our Facebook account. It's easy to go home and get lost in the minutia of our online presence. I used to get mad at my son. I said, when I call, why don't you pick up? He says, Dad, I saw you called. I saw the message. I'll get back to you when I get back to you. He said, besides, I know how you're doing. I got Facebook. I said, son, I don't post on Facebook. He said, hmm, maybe I ought to look at my Facebook account more often. How about, no, you pick up the phone and call me. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to lose touch. And it's easy not to be connected the way people should be connected. Jesus was one-on-one with people. Will Rogers Rogers said that he never met a man he did not like. When I was growing up, I thought he hadn't met my dad very much, had he? He had a temper. But you know, everybody that knew my dad loved him. Still do. Don't get me wrong. I think it's important that we we have our families, but I want you to look around you at this family right here. When they have church outings and they do things together as a congregation and they're trying to, to do things in the community, are you a part of that? 
Or have you locked yourself away? I'll read about it on Facebook. It's easy to become separated and isolated. The more we know about people and their lives and the more we're in each other's lives, the more we know about each other and the more influence we can have on each other for good and not evil. You know, a lot of people say that I just can't do it. I just can't teach others. I can't do what others can do. Mike teaches better teaches everybody better than I do. I mean, how can we use compassion then to, to teach others, to reach others, to make them understand and see Jesus Christ? No, first thing, it should motivate us to teach them. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, if we really love somebody, we're going to share with them the best news that you and I have to offer that this world can never do, and that's Jesus Christ. It says, And Jesus, when He came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. And so He began to teach them many things. Jesus taught them because of His compassion for them, His desire for them to be better than they are now. For them to have a relationship with His Father that they did not have then. You say, well, I'm unable to teach. You know, if we have the compassion that we need, in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, For though by this, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and have come to need milk and not solid food. You know, sometimes it's not because we can't, but because, to be honest with you, we don't know. We haven't taken the time to learn. And ladies, I want you to understand that in the churches of Christ, it's been commonly reported that women don't do anything but cook, clean, and make sure everybody's taken care of when they're sick. And you know what? That's crazy. Priscilla and Aquila, they were husband and wife. And she did just as much teaching as he did. You're only limited in the worship of your God and the service of your God here. You're not limited to how or who you should teach outside of the worship service. You're encouraged to teach just as much as Yancey Jones is encouraged to teach. As anybody. You have access to people that I would never have access to. Do not be afraid to teach. Dig in. The more you know, the easier it is to talk about and the more excited you become. You know, if someone gets a new car, I will guarantee you the first thing I see on Facebook is everybody look at my new car. Man, it's the best car. You can go over here to John Sewell Cadillac and get you one just like it. I mean, look at all the things that it does and they show it inside and they show it outside and they show them cleaning it and working on it. Not once do they say, I got this Savior. You need to know Him. He's better than sliced bread. He's better than anything. Why? Because maybe they don't know Him, don't know enough about Him, or maybe they just feel like they can't teach. You know, there's a lot of us that feel like we can't teach. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks of you a reason for the hope that lies within them. 
with meekness and fear. Sometimes it's not about sitting down and formally teaching somebody. Sometimes it's about just sharing your faith. Each and every one of us has a reason we're a Christian. Why do we believe? I don't know your story. And sometimes when we get together, I'll tell you my story if you want to know. And it'll be different than your story. But you know what we have in common? It's the same Lord. It's the same Jesus who loves us. It's the same Jesus who saves us. It's the same Jesus that we come and kneel before with regardless of our reasons for getting there. It's the same Lord that feeds us and the one that raises us up and heals our distress. And that's worth talking about. You know, sometimes if you feel you can't teach, you can be like Philip. In John chapter 1, beginning verse 45, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Come and see. He wasn't going to let the comments that were coming from Nathaniel keep him from telling him and introducing him to this man whom the prophets had foretold. He was convinced that Jesus was the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ that was supposed to come into the world, and he wanted Nathaniel to know it. Philip couldn't tell him everything about him. Philip said, come and see. And he went and got Nathaniel. You know, sometimes we just need to invite people or send someone like Philip to talk to them. In Acts, Acts the 10th chapter, verse 24, it says, The following day they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. And he said, So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you of God. Wow. I can't even get my dogs to come sit next to me for more than two seconds before they're up and running. And this guy got his entire family and all of his close friends so that they could come and hear the Word of God. I may not be able to teach it, but I can bring people to it. You see, we can do something. We can do something. We can involve others. You know, to seek to involve others in saving the lost by praying for them. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 38, it says, Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest that He sends out laborers into His harvest. Think about that. He didn't say you had to be all the laborers. He said pray for more laborers. Pray. I'll just be honest with you. I saw a movie not too long ago, The War Room. I don't know if you've seen it. But it gave me a whole different perspective on prayer that maybe I had neglected in my own life. Prayer is a very powerful tool. And I don't think we use it enough in our lives. Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest that He sends forth laborers into His harvest. 
We might be some of the laborers. We might be some of the prayer warriors. Those who pray and work in that way at saving those that we love and those that we know. This is something that any of us can do. In First Thessalonians, or Second Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter three and verse one, it says, "Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you." You can pray. And you can entreat the Father, and you can entreat Christ for a harvest and for your own personal growth to be a laborer for Him. Seeking to involve others may mean sending someone, not just bringing them to here, but maybe going with them to somebody else. In Matthew chapter 10, 5 through 7, Jesus said, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not give into the way of the, go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want you to notice, Jesus didn't do all the preaching. He sent out all those other disciples to go and teach. He involved others in His quest to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't do it all Himself. If you expect one or two guys in the congregation to do all the teaching, you're going to grow real slow. Because they can only get to so many at a time. But there's others here who can teach. Send them. Go with them. Learn. Have a desire. Let the compassion you have for somebody... Move you towards others. I remember one preacher, he was going and, and he was working with another preacher. And the preacher said, if you get a study set up, we'll go do the study. He said, okay. Next week he called and said, hey, I got a study set up. He said, okay, let's go. They met, they went, they did the study. Three sessions later, they were baptizing him. The guy says, man, this is fantastic. He says, oh, by the way, I've got a new study to start next week says, good, we'll keep this one going and we'll get the next one going. So they went to the second one and they got it going. They took the first one to the elders of the church and he was going to church and the elders were working with him. And you know, before you knew, before you knew what had happened, they were baptizing the second one. He says, I could set these up all day long. He says, get another one. He says, okay, I will. And so he went out and got another one and they pulled up and he says, I'm ready. Let's go. He says, well, you're doing it. He says, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> He said, I can set them up. I'm not doing it. He says, no, you're doing it. He said, I can't do that. He says, well, then they're dying and going to hell because I'm going home. And he started the car. He said, you're kidding. He says, no, I'm not. He said, come on. And so he got out. And you know what he found out? He could teach them about Jesus just as much as the preacher that he was working with. They got through. They baptized him. And he looked at the other preacher. He says, go do your own work. I can keep doing this. He taught two other guys to do it. Folks, that's not fiction. That's real life. And that's life that could be happening here, today. You may not know how, but I'll guarantee you, you can learn and you can do. My wife said she couldn't get up and talk to anybody in front of anybody. And here at school, she's had to deliver three oral reports in the last two weeks. And she said, you know, it's not as bad as I thought it was. Complete with PowerPoint at school. Said the first time she couldn't hardly breathe. The third time it was just no big deal. She could do this. You see, we grow by exposing ourselves to things that we're not comfortable with until 
we become an expert at it. That's what I'm trying to tell you. That you can become involved. You can send others. Jesus did more than teach and pray. He taught people how to do the work. He sent those disciples out. In Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, it says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only, for even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. People were involved in His work from a distance, and He knew it. He knew it. We can be involved in the work. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for His name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers in the truth. You see, we can do something even if we're not comfortable doing it. We can give. We can pray. We can support. We can bring others. We can send others. And it can be done. And the church will grow. But like this morning, we've got to stop being indifferent. We've got to develop a sense of compassion that will motivate us to work in the church as God has sent us forth. You see, compassion is the steam. And without the steam, there isn't any movement. Oh, we can sit there and have everybody on the train, comfortable on the train, but the train goes nowhere. We need to move the train. We need to move people into the folds of Jesus Christ. We need to let them know by study, in our compassion, by desire, in our desire for them, that we love them and they need to know Jesus. That name that I had you write on the back of your sheet, that name is for you. It's for nobody else. That name is yours to talk to. That name is yours to see that they're visited. That name is yours to study with or see that a study is done to see them into the kingdom of God. Whether you do it by yourself or you involve others in the congregation or in the congregations throughout the world, that name is yours alone. What are you going to do with it? What's preventing you from doing anything at all? How can you help that person know Jesus Christ? With compassion for the lost, we will not rest until we do something about that one name. In Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 9, it says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. That's the compassion we need to have. The Word of God cannot be shut up inside of you. It should not be shut up inside of you. It should be out and it should be working. And there are ways to do it that are frightening and yet exciting and wonderful when they know Christ as you know Christ. Don't hold Him to yourself. Do something. Have some compassion 
and get up and do something about that one name. The lesson is yours this morning or this afternoon. If we can be of help to you in any way, we're here to pray with you and for you on your behalf. Won't you make your desires known as we stand and sing the song that's been sung?